Welcome to Season 3 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Daniel Reynolds talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unbox Inspiration to Publication, Episode 50, London Necropolis Railway. Today, we are joined by Daniel Newman, the designer of Ahead in the Clouds, Dead Men's Cable, Feet on the Ground, Watch, Reaper, Rolled West, The Science and Seance Society, and of course, London Necropolis Railway, published by New Mill Industries. Thanks for joining. Hi, thank you for having me. No, thanks for celebrating episode 50. Episode 50. I know, right? We were joking before this that I had to put a Daniel on because I'm Danielle and it felt right. right. That's right. (laughs) That or just completely happened organically and on accident. No, no, let's go with the intentional. That sounds better. We'll go with the intentional. All right. It's that double D action. Love it. That's right. That's right. Sweet. Well, hey, for anyone who doesn't know you, why don't you tell everybody how you got into the gaming industry to start us off? Um, so getting into the gaming industry. So I, um, I'm a board game designer, uh, and, oh man, we had, I had a kid. Well, my wife had the kid technically, but we, uh, we had a child and we were just looking for things to do that weren't, you know, um, watching TV all the time. Uh, and sure. we've been playing board games for a while and I was like, Hey, why don't we try to design one together? Um, so we started out uh, coming up with some, some ideas of what we'd want the game to be and all of that. And then, uh, I created a prototype and, and I started bringing it to these game nights that I had found, uh, in my neighborhood. And then somebody said, Oh, you know, there's a designer group that meets here on Saturdays. I was like, Oh, that's cool. And I brought it to that. And then it just kind of steamrolled from there. Um, and I started going to the designer groups and then I started going to conventions and then suddenly I was a published game designer because that's how it works. That's all you got to do is you go to a group and then you're you're a published designer. Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah. Which group did you go to? Uh, so it's the New York Playtest Group. Um, and at the time, uh, Gil Hova was, I think, about to take it over. Somebody else was running it, um, but they were kind of stepping back. So, you know, my first game design group was like Gil Hova and Emerson Matsuchi and and uh, a couple other people in, in New York. Um, so it was, I kind of got dropped in the deep end pretty fast, which was super cool for me. Um, and then my first convention was Metatopia, which is a big um, playtesting convention in New Jersey. And I learned a lot there and got my games in front of a ton of people I had never met before, which was wild. And then, yeah, it just kind of took off from there. And I actually, my first published game did come uh, through an interaction I had at Metatopia. Uh, I met uh, Jason Tagmeyer from Buttonshy. Um, he was doing a panel and I talked to him afterwards and, and kind of asked him what he was looking for, you know, uh, for wallet games. And he, what he said was one of the things he wanted was like a tight Euro, like a uh, two player Euro that could fit on 18 cards. And that wow. seemed like an awesome challenge. And I happened to have a game that I thought I could probably modify. It was like a big table hog, but I was able to compress it down to 18 cards and I'm I sorry, you it. took a game that takes up a table to yeah. 18 cards. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and yeah, and that wound up being ahead in the clouds. Uh, and that was my first published game. So I pitched to him and he liked it. And and the uh, rest is history, I guess. Um, That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, no, that was super cool. Um, and I also had entered a game into the Cardboard Edison Award uh, the first year they did it and wound up being a finalist, which also I think helped me kind of get in front of some other publishers, kind of got my name out there. Um, and a lot of the friends I have in the, in the board gaming industry came about through that, that convention through, um, 
sorry, through Cardboard Edison contests. And like, I've become friends with those guys. Uh, and then I was a judge at the Cardboard Edison Award for a while. Um, it's just, yeah, I mean, you, you start meeting people and they introduce you to other people and suddenly you're, you're, uh, waist you're high in the industry, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and now, yeah. And now everything in my life has led me to this, this podcast episode so 50. Beautiful. It's uh, really funny though. Cause I was literally just at the New York, uh, play test group last oh. weekend. Yeah. Oh, so okay, cool. I was in your neighborhood. You weren't there, but yeah, whatever. I have it's not fine. made it back since, uh, since coming back from Germany, um, it's just been like, I work has been crazy and I've had to, I had to work this last Saturday, which kind of sucked. Normally I don't work on the weekends. Um, but sometimes you got to do it. So yeah, it's funny that you were there the one time I, I wasn't. <laughs> so I'm usually I pretty Normally regular. I can't make it cause it's just like not right? the closest for me. It's like yeah. three hours with traffic yeah, yeah. more, more. Yeah. Not the closest, but I was glad I got to check it out for once since I've been told about it so many, so many times. I heard it was a big turnout this last Saturday, too. Kind of one of our largest since the pandemic kind of opened up. Sure. I have no reference, but yeah, Yeah. it felt big. Anyway, (laughs) usually we're lucky if we can get like four people together. So lately. Yeah. Well, yeah, the pandemic definitely did that. I know it dispersed the group I used to be in charge of back when I was in Chicago. So that went online. And then eventually when things started opening up, that dispersed. And now... Clearly, I don't live in Chicago anymore, so I right. definitely am not manning that. And it kind of just one or two of the other like suburbs took over. So gotcha. I'm glad that like there's something going on still in the Chicago suburbs, but the one that I was running no longer really exists. As we'll have far to talk about Chicago another time. I have I have some history with Chicago actually. Oh, funny. So okay, well, hey, why don't we pivot back to sure. our spotlight? It is London Necropolis Railway. For anyone who has never played the game, mind explaining how the game is played? Um, yeah, so this game is actually based on a, an actual historic rail line um, from the late 19th century. London was kind of having a real hard time keeping up with cholera, uh, and they were running out of places to bury their dead. So there was a proposal to build kind of an off-site cemetery, um, and the train would then carry... Uh, the dead and, and mourners to this offsite cemetery. Um, it was actually built and ran for a number of years. Um, so in, in the game, players are kind of proposing their own plan uh, for this, this system. And, and you're running the London terminus and the, and the cemetery itself. And then the train that connects the two and, and, it uses this action selection system where uh, there are three cards out and two colored discs. And these discs are kind of what you spend to take actions on the cards. Um, so you're choosing the card that has actions on it and well, the discs and all that's one of those games. that's hard to explain without having it in front of you, but um, yeah, so it's just, you're kind of like building up this, this train system and upgrading everything as you go to try to be the most efficient and, and uh, kind of fill your cemetery and staff your, your office and upgrade your train and then yeah it's funny just when i was listening or listing in the opening credits all your games i was just yep. like wow you have a thing for like kind of dark morbid yeah themes. so What's it started about? out kind of as a joke so um the very first of those uh wound up being uh dead man's cabal uh it was published by pandasaurus the very first version of it i called necromancer's tea party and it was just kind of this tongue-in-cheek like Oh, it's it's like a, a you very a bunch fancy of zombies for a tea party. Yeah, but like, but with zombies and whatever, and it was a joke. And then like, 
I had these little skull beads that I was using and then those became like skull tokens. And then like just the skulls just kind of took off and it became almost like a brand thing for me. Um, And then I had originally was calling it uh, dead man's party. Um, But Pandasaurus didn't want to use the, cause it's named after an Oingo Boingo song. They didn't want to use the name of the song. And so I got changed or whatever. But yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And then I just kept coming up with, I actually was other Oingo Boingo songs from that album that I started naming games after. And I kept using this like death theme just cause it was, I kept having more ideas. Um, so London Necropolis was actually the third game that I made with this, this kind of death theme. Uh, but that one, uh, somebody actually pointed out to me after I had done dead man's cabal. They're like, Oh, I just heard out about this, this train line that you should check into it. And they sent me like a Wikipedia article. And I read that article. I was like, Oh, this sounds like an awesome setting for a game. And I liked that it was actually this historical rail line. So it's less like spooky and more kind of factual, uh, historical. Yeah. Very cool. And so you were talking about the action discs before, would you mind explaining like exactly how to use them on your turn? Okay, so there are every card has three sections that correspond to the three parts of your system. So there's the London section, the Necropolis section, and the Railway section, which are respectively, I think it's changed since I first designed. I think it's blue, green, and gray. Uh, and then there's wild discs, which are orange. So when you take a card, it has a different action for each of those sections uh, on each card. And then the discs are those colors. So you could take a card that has like a blue and a gray disc, right? And those go into your supply with the card and you're using the discs you've collected in order to take actions. So if I want to do a blue action, I have to use a blue disc or an orange disc for the wild. So you may be in a situation where like you want to take a specific action, but you haven't taken the discs for that action. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, but every, every turn you're taking a card and the two discs that are underneath that card. So you may take a card that you don't care about as much just because you want those like two orange discs or something to give you more options. Um, And there's other ways you can spend the discs on other kind of bonus actions and stuff. Uh, But that's kind of the engine of the game. So since this game was based around a historical period, would you consider it as like under one of the train games to compete against? So it's funny because it's about a train, but I would not call it a train game. Because when you say train game, there are very specific things that people who play train games have in mind. Uh, like there's no stocks, there's no route building. Um, none of the things that you would find in a typical quote unquote train game, um, but it is a game about a train. Um, I also like to joke that it's an 18xx game because it takes place in 1893, but it is absolutely not an 18xx game. Uh, wow. <laughs> and people who play 18xx games would get really upset if they heard me call it 18xx because they're very, very specific about that. So you're upsetting them and the train gamers. Yes. Well, and there's overlap there. 18xx is like a kind of train game. Um, as opposed to like cube rails, which is kind of, I think of as, as 18 XX's like younger cousin, um, where it's just like some of the same ideas, but simplified, um, not as in depth, but no London Acropolis railway is not technically a train game. And then what kind of changes did you make while you were play testing? I'm trying to think. So I feel like the core of the game came together pretty fast. Um, one thing that I, when I first was trying to conceive of the game, I thought it would be cool to have it be 
one system that was being worked on by all players and each player took a different chunk of it. So kind of asymmetric, but I never quite figured out how to make that work. I'm trying to think what is what changed during playtesting. I mean, there's always stuff that changes, right? Like it never, when you first put it on the table, it never quite goes the way you expect it to. Um, I think the card system probably evolved quite a bit. Um, and that, oh, so one really cool thing that came out of playtesting, if you want to edit out that other junk earlier. <laughs> okay. um, so the, the, the coolest thing that came out of playtesting was I realized I wanted to randomize the uh, the discs that go underneath the cards. Um, and I think I was just pulling them out of a bag and it just wasn't really working that well. And I, I wanted more of like an even distribution of, of when these discs came out. And I realized I could use the back of the card, uh, like the deck, to put the um, the pair of discs that will come out for the next card. And it was actually, it felt really smooth once we once we figured that out. And that, that definitely came out through playtesting, um, using the back of the card in a functional way. Um, so when you shuffle the deck, like you always know what the next card coming out will have, uh, what discs will be paired with it, and it's going to change every time. But then I, I make sure that it's always the same distribution. I will say I really love when designers utilize like every bit of a card, like oh, yeah. not only the front, but also the back. Because like my company, Underdog Games, we use the back for content. But okay. also, I mean, there's... Plenty of games I can think of, like Point Salad's a great one where that's sure. great dual usage of a card. Well, that was great training for me uh, with the Button Shy game with the Head in the Clouds. Is like, how do I get a Euro compressed into 18 cards? And the answer is you use every edge of those cards, front and back. Uh, like I wound up using for resource, because I had all these resources in the game, and I wound up using... Uh, each there are four cards for four resources and you just rotate the card and whatever is face up is how many things you have. So you can actually count up to eight items with one card, depending on the rotation. So yeah, I think, I think doing those, those 18 card games early in my game design career really helped me remember to use like as much of that of each component as you can. That is really cool. I used to apply to the different button shy contests. Remember when they were doing like the oh, monthly yeah. challenges? Yeah, 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 and it was. It was a really good tool for me when yeah. I first was starting out. Having those constraints, like it's a good challenge and it's a good way to like really focus your ideas um, because you know you have to you have to hit a certain mark. Um, whereas like designing a game from scratch, like you can throw everything in there and it can be hard to know. Uh, what's going to work and what isn't, and do you need this? Do you not need this? I often wind up paring my games down quite a bit after I start them. Like I'll throw all this stuff in and I'll take it to the first play test. And I'm like, oh, all, half of this is unnecessary. <laughs> so it is interesting. You, yeah. Go ahead. Do you prefer to design with those kind of restraints or do you prefer to just like come up with an idea and just see where it goes? Um, I Lately, it's been just kind of... So one thing I've been doing is I, I like to come up with a, an action selection system first and then figure out what I can do with that uh, and then build it around that. And sometimes that system gets changed. Um, but I like having this kind of centerpiece that I can then build off of. Um, the last couple have been very um, physical too. I have a 3D printer now. And now all I want to do is make things I can 3D print and have that be the center of my game. Oh, that's um, so funny. So it does, like, it's similar, right? Like, I'm giving myself the constraint of I want uh, something I can build that will help me, you know, randomize things often. So then would you classify yourself as more of a uh, mechanic-based designer versus, like, thematic if action selection is the first thing you focus on? Typically, I mean, it depends on the game. Like, London Acropolis was definitely theme-first, right? Like that was 100%. I want to make a game about this idea. 
and then it was figuring out how it should work. Um, but there, there've absolutely been other games where I start with like, I want to pull skulls from a bag and put them through this grid and then something pops out and that's going to be your action. I'm really like the games I like to play are very, I like to play heavier games that have really interesting action selection, um, mechanisms and ideas. So that's usually where my head is first when I'm thinking about a new game, um, lately anyway. Uh, and so some of my earlier games was really like, I like the mechanism from this heavy game, but I want to make a lighter game that uses it. Uh, and it kind of like bring people into those heavier game ideas, but in a more accessible package, like dead man's cabal was definitely that watch was definitely that, um, where I was, I was borrowing and modifying stuff from games that I really enjoyed and trying to make something a little more accessible. That's so funny. That's what gets me into the heavier games is when I see mechanics that I oh, really yeah. enjoy and the easier ones. So it goes, it really does flip back like both directions. Oh, for sure. For sure. So what made you decide to use prestige and the filling of the necropolis as your two like primary point structures for the game? Um, well, you know, part of that is like you're making a game about a cemetery. Like what do you want to reward players for doing? Right. And obviously one of those is, filling the cemetery a certain way. Um, and then I was just figuring out like, well, what's interesting, what, you know, what system can I come up with that makes some filling the cemetery interesting? And, and it became about, you know, matching colors and then, and then adding these crypts, which would, uh, kind of act as multipliers for the columns or whatever. But then there's also different row scoring and all this, there's all this stuff going on, right? You could do once you start putting the pieces in place. And then, um, I didn't want to neglect the other half of the game, which was building up the office in London. So I came up with that prestige system to like, you're making your, the office more appealing for people to come and like deal with their dead there instead of somewhere else. I don't know that London would have multiple <laughs> options. Of dropping in the river. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Or like an empty hole behind their house. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it just seemed to be a natural way to kind of reward people for doing different things right oh for sure so then at what point did you decide like hey this isn't a good spot i'm going to move forward into like publishing and what did that look like for you in this game this was a funny one because the theme is so kind of grim um and i was having some trouble finding publishers who would be that interested in it um i knew that uh uli bledeman from spielworks liked kind of quirky historical themes so i had shown it to him um, I guess I had worked on it, uh, six months or so, I think, but that's like really intensive play testing. Like pre pandemic, I was testing twice a week and making changes every, after every session. Um, so it was pretty intense development for those six months or whatever. But then I, yeah, I reached out to Uli and I showed it to him and it was a little light for him, but I was also, I had started, uh, new mill industries with uh tony miller um and we do kind of smaller games and this was a little big for us to handle a lot of components larger size like it just wasn't kind of the scale of what we normally do but uli said he could he would be interested in co-publishing it with our company so that it wouldn't be like a full spielworks game which tends to do kind of heavier stuff and it would the quirkiness kind of fit with the new mill brand so we kind of co-branded it um but he wound up making it look more like a Spielworks game. He used the same artist that he always uses or typically uses for Spielworks stuff. And then, uh, yeah, so it's, you know, again, it's like one of those relationships I built through Twitter and conventions and stuff. It was just uh, Spielworks was somebody, Uli was somebody I got to know over the last few years and and it just worked out. And then, uh, yeah, we had it at Essen 
for the first time, which was super awesome. They sold out. He, he only had a couple dozen copies left because he had, he had sold all the others into distribution in Germany and a few, a couple other places. Um, so he sold, he sold through what he brought like on the first day, which was pretty wild. That's so amazing. Did they print it in German and English or? Yeah. Yeah. So okay. the rule book is, there's a German rule book and an English rule book. Um, because yeah, half of the print run, uh, went straight into, um, to German distribution. Um, and then it was like another quarter of it went to BGG. And then there's some that went to board game bliss, I think in Canada and a couple other places, but, uh, he only does like 1000 print run, uh, every time for every game. Oh, wow. Which is, so it's, it's kind of similar to how we do things, except he actually does like traditional, uh, printing and publishing and stuff. Whereas new mill, um, we do everything with print on demand services. Uh, so much smaller runs, but Spielworks was definitely one of the companies that, that we were looking at when we first started thinking about doing new mill, um, because they, they're very niche and like, and small print runs. That's so interesting. So with a thousand copies of it getting printed, do they tend to do multiple print runs or is it just like, Hey, this game comes out limited, you know, you either need to get it or you're never going to have it. Yeah. It's the latter. Um, I mean, what Spielworks has often done with their with their games that are a little more successful is they'll sub-license it to American publishers. So um, Stronghold had, has done a lot of a bunch of Spielworks stuff. Capstone has done a few Spielworks games. There have been a couple others um, that he's kind of sub-licensed to. Uh, but he only does the one run. He's just set, like, I'm going to do a thousand copies and then that's it. And if somebody else wants to do it, you know, they can pick it up and do it. He's just interested That's in putting so out cool, weird games. You know, it's very similar to what, what we're doing now. Um, what kind of print runs are you doing then with your company? Um, so we tend to do between like 250 and 500 copies um, because we do it all print on demand with separate vendors. They all, everything gets shipped to Tony. I'm in Brooklyn. Tony's in, in uh, Oregon. Everything gets shipped to his house and then he hand assembles everything and, and takes from the post office. So Union Station, we did do a thousand copies um, because we have the demand for it. Uh, typically, you know, 300, 350 uh, is what we kind of shoot for. Um, partly because we're doing everything ourselves and like Tony would get overwhelmed if we did more than that. We also like because we're doing print on demand stuff, we kind of max out our discounts at a certain point. Um, it's just cost wise, it's going to be cheaper once we get over about 500 copies for most things we're doing. Um, so it's just, yeah. And like, I was actually talking to another publisher today and trying to explain why we do it this way. Um, part of it is because we can turn things around super fast. Part of it is because we just like to have less hassle. We don't want to deal with shipping overseas. We don't want to deal with minimum orders and getting stuck with inventory we can't sell. Um, but the flip side is we have to charge a little more because our production costs are way higher. We don't make as much money, but again, that's not the main reason we're doing it. Um, and uh, I don't know. It's just, it's worked for us. We've done five, I think we're on our fifth game right now on Kickstarter. Um, and it's just been fun to kind of get weird games out there. It does sound very interesting and very niche. Yeah. We like to call ourselves like punk rock publishers. <laughs> because we don't we don't really follow all the rules that that most uh, most of the industry does. 
Yeah, I was going to say, because even when I was like looking up some of these games, quite a few of them, I'm so used to seeing like tons and tons of board game reviews on YouTube and then right. like all these different pages. And I'm just like, where where are these things? Yeah, I'm so confused. We fly super under the radar. We usually do maybe three or four um, preview copies that we'll send out uh, just for the Kickstarter. Um, and then sometimes people catch wind of it and we'll do their own little videos or whatever. Uh, after it comes out but um yeah we don't i mean we don't really give any money for marketing because we're making so little on it um and yeah it's really like we really lean heavy on our twitter presence to to sell the you know 300 or so games that we try to sell it's so interesting and so yeah. when you're deciding like who you're going to send those preview copies to how do you decide that a lot of it again is like people i've gotten to know through twitter or conventions um, we've got a couple people that I, I check with first because we've worked with them before and they're, they understand what we're doing and how we're doing it and are into like just our ethos of, of making these weird little games and, and they're willing to like just do stuff for us because they want to support us. Um, and you know, I, I try to find, you know, I, I try to find people that aren't just straight white dudes to review stuff because that's kind of boring yeah um and so i've got i've got a couple of friends that that are down to to look at our stuff when it it kind of fits their style which is pretty cool that is super awesome so as a company what is your goal like printing one game a year two games a year walk me through that i, I think ultimately we we try to do like three a year we do one in like october we'll do one in the spring and then one in the summer we haven't stuck to that exactly um, our first year we did, I think we did do it that way. Yeah. And then last year we canceled our summer one, uh, because I was having trouble finding the right, um, it needed like clear playing cards and the source that I thought I was gonna be able to use didn't really work out and I couldn't find another way to do it. So we wound up canceling it just cause I couldn't produce it effectively, um, which was a bummer, but, um, and then our, our spring game was actually the, the co-publication with Spielworks. We didn't actually have a, a Kickstarter campaign. So we only actually did one Kickstarter last year. Um, this year we have uh, the one we've got going night, right now. And I, I, I think of our year as like September to September because that's when we started. Um, yeah. So we've got Portents up now on Kickstarter through the next, uh, oh, just less than a week. It ends at 10 a.m. on next Tuesday. I don't know when this is dropping, but it's probably past. It'll be um, past that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, Chris's game, he mentioned it on his uh, episode when oh, he was sweet. talking about the Night Cage. Yep. Awesome. Um, so yeah, it's this cool little abstract game that, that Chris did that I discovered through our playtesting group. And like every time he brought it, I was just super excited to play it. And then when we started the company, I was like, I want to do this game if you're down. Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, so we got that. We've got... Um, another game planned a trick-taking game by a friend of mine uh in the spring and then uh next summer uh this cool game based on cribbage it's like a two-player cooperative game based on cribbage and it's the theme is uh like performance uh sword fighting competition interesting it's, it's super I like weird the and really cool yeah. yeah we i like to pick stuff that's just offbeat you know, it's often like the stuff I'm looking for are games that might have a hard time um, 
with most publishers because they're just a little quirky. Um, so anytime I hear somebody talking about how like they have this game that they absolutely love and that publishers are super into and they keep getting responsive, like, I love this game, but I can't publish it. Like, that's what I want to look at. Um, cause that's what I was hearing with science and science society, which was our, our first release. I kept, I showed it to so many publishers and they're like, we think this idea is super awesome. We just, it's not going to fit in our line, which is super frustrating. Uh, so I was like, well, let's just start this company and get a couple hundred copies out there for people who want it and then move on to the next. I love it. It feels thing. like the Island of Misfit toys <laughs> for your company. It's just yeah, like, yeah. Oh, this really good toy, but only a specific type of person. Yep. Or, and that's, yeah. We're just that's make a goals. few of them. Yep. Exactly. That's what we want to do. Um, so Beyond that, I think I had another, actually I had another trick taking game that I was planning doing next fall, but I actually signed it to a publisher. And that's the other thing about our company is that I think I mentioned that earlier, but, um, oh no, maybe I didn't. We do this like handshake plus contract. It's very loose. And in it, uh, we say like up to three months before the planned Kickstarter, like either party can back out of it for whatever reason, including like if you keep pitching it, and you find somebody who wants to do it, we're excited and we'll be the first to back it because our goal is to get your game made, not necessarily for us to make it right. Like that. We don't care. We just want it out there. And that's why we're interested in it. So I kept like this whole process with Chris. I was like, are you sure you don't want to pay? This game is awesome. Like, I really think you should still keep pitching it because I think you could probably find somebody to, to do a bigger run. And actually we do have a publisher now that that's been asking about it, uh, to see what, what our plans were after the Kickstarter. Um, and, after the Kickstarter, we kick the design right back to the the uh, the designer. We give him the rights immediately, so like he can take the copies we printed and use those to pitch to publishers. Or if he gets approached, so this guy, this publisher approached us, and I was like, "You should just talk to Chris because it's his again." After the Kickstarter is done, he gets it back. It's so interesting. This yeah. is how I know you're a designer yeah. being in charge of a company because oh. you know what it's like to be yeah, on yeah. the other end. We also give our designers twenty percent of the profits, which is unheard of. With every any other publisher, yeah, I was gonna say normally you'd be lucky to get eight percent. Yeah, five to eight is like industry standard. Eight if like you're kind of an established designer. Um, we're like, no, nah, dude, like this is your game. We're just running a Kickstarter for it and doing minimal graphic design. Like, we'll give you twenty percent. And Chris actually did all the art for his. I was gonna say yeah, because he did all his art for Night Cage too. So we're kicking him thirty total. Cause he's, and like, it'll come out of my cut because I normally do the graphic design for it. It's less for me to have to do. So he can have, he can have more of my cut. Cause we don't like, again, like we're not in it for them. Like the money's nice. It pays me to go to conventions and buy more games, but like, it's more just to get cool stuff made. And the designer should be getting that much. It's, you know, we wouldn't have a game if it wasn't for the, the designer. So. No, I love that. That's so amazing. But I guess what for London Necropolis Railway, what made that one special that you and your company decided like we need to do this one? Um, I mean, it's it really did fit our mold of like a weird game that nobody's going to publish unless we do it ourselves. Um, And then the challenge of of co-publishing it, which I had never done before and working very closely with the publisher, you know, on all the production aspects. um, It just it felt like a good fit. Uh, I know Spielworks is into historical themes, especially kind of weird ones. Um, so I just, I knew it would work out really well. And it, but it was one that like, I felt strongly was a good game and it was ready to go. Uh, and I just, I didn't know what else to do with it. And sometimes that means we just publish it ourselves. No, yeah, for sure. That definitely makes sense. How was your like co-publishing experience? Would you 
do that every time or would you prefer to just publish yourself? I think it really depends on the game and I think it really depends on the publisher. Um, I would absolutely work with Uli again and do a co-publication with Spielworks again. And he indicated that he'd be interested in doing it again as well. I think from my point of view, I'd almost with a larger game, especially I'd, I'd rather just sign it and have somebody else handle everything. Um, but I like that I have this opportunity to kind of fall back on if I, if I have another game that's just a little too weird to find a home. Um, I did bring a couple prototypes of larger games to Essen and I was able to find uh, publishers. I pitched a couple publishers and they, they took prototypes with them, which is super awesome. But if oh, either nice. of those gets kicked back, I would absolutely go to Uli and be like, hey, maybe we should do this one as a, as a new mail spillworks because I think it would I think they would work. So it's more work, right? It's a lot more work for me doing the co-publishing route on a larger game than if I just hand it off to a, another publisher to do it themselves. But it's another way to get it out there, which was cool. And it, yeah, it was a really good experience. So I'd absolutely do it again. That's so awesome. I feel like that'd be an interesting experience to figure yeah. out how to co-publish because co-designing is already such a different experience versus solo design. So like the co-publishing seems kind of cool. I think the co-designing is something I can't, I've tried a couple times and I'm not suited for it. I need to have full control over how the game develops uh, or no control. Like with Dead Man's Cabal, I was involved in some of the early kind of development decisions. And then I had to back away because I was getting frustrated because it was going in a direction I didn't, I wasn't super convinced was the right one. And I had to be like, you know what? I'm just going to back away and trust that you're going to make this right. And let me know when it's done because I, I have to either be doing it or not at all. But somehow with the co-publishing, yeah. I think because with co-publishing, we we like very clearly delineated who was responsible for what parts. And it was really like I was handling all of the kind of art direction decisions and Uli was handling all the production decisions. So we were able to kind of divide and conquer and still communicate about everything. But he kind of let me do my thing and I let him do his, do his thing for the most part. And it just worked really well. So then you as a designer, when you do sign a game, you hand it off to a publisher and they're developing and you decide to step away and then you get the game. How do you deal with like opening the game, reading the rule book and realizing how much of it they've changed that you probably didn't agree with? Um, the only time that's really happened was with, was with Dead Man's. Um, and they were kind of keeping me in the loop. I just was like, I just, I kind of was like, uh, just let me know when it's done. And it was frustrating at first and then, once it got to a polished point, like it was the, it was when they made the first big changes that I was like, this, I don't think this is working. But by the time, you know, I, I let them work on it some more. And by the time I got the final product, like they, they had figured out those problems and, and, uh, and it was fine. But yeah, it was, it was weird because it wasn't 100% the game that I had handed them. But I think it's just part of that's part of the process. And they probably made it a better game. It was different. Like the game I had given them was a little, um, crunchier maybe a little meaner it used more kind of the biggest thing was I, the game that i had originally had uh you could spend points to do extra actions and their play testers hated that nobody wanted to spend points and it's a very like old school euro thing that sure. just didn't translate for their 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 audience i guess um so they had to figure out this other way to to kind of balance stuff out um so it was, it was an adjustment but like i don't know i figured it out it was fine. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Um, for then, for London Necropolis or away, how long in total did it take from your like initial inspiration, like hearing about this event in history, deciding to make a game on it, and then having it back or to the Kickstarter backers? Um, so we didn't actually do Kickstarter with that one. We did a. Um, oh. We so 
Uli was able to kind of do a pre-order system and actually pre-sold 75% of it. Oh, wow. Very early um, to a, a couple of like big distrib- distribution uh, outlets. And then he's like, yeah, we don't even need to do a Kickstarter. We can just do it with pre-orders, which was awesome. I was going to say that probably was really nice for you. Yeah, it was great. Cause I, we probably made a little less on it, but uh, it was just way, way less hassle. Cause I would have had to run the Kickstarter. So it was just less for me to have to do. Um, for sure. But so from, from first hearing about it, it took me, I remember writing some notes when I first came across the, the Wikipedia article. And then like I sat with it for probably close to a year before I started actually designing anything. Cause I, I had this idea of it being asymmetrical and I couldn't really get my head around how that would work. Uh, and then eventually came back to it. And then I probably worked on it for about six months. I think I finished working on it right before the pandemic hit. And then I sat on it for another year maybe. And then talked to Uli about it. And then once I started working with Uli, it came together very fast we took the pre-orders and it came out at essence. So all in maybe like th- two or three years, I think from like idea to finished, which seems uh, about, yeah. but it's, it seems about right for most of my games. I think I just because that seems to be the average from everyone I talk yeah, to. It's around two, or three two years. years. Yeah. yeah. From, yeah. From prototype to finished two years is, is pretty average. I think. Okay. And then in that particular game's experience, do you have a favorite and a least favorite moment? Just in the, in the, in the process of it? Yeah. in the process of designing it, developing it, uh, working with the co-publishing, like, do you have a moment that is your favorite? And do you have a moment that you're like, oh, this could have gone better? So my least favorite moment is always the very beginning of a design. Every time. I hate it so much when like, there's this nebulous cloud of ideas in my head and it's not gelling and I don't know how to structure it. And it's just pulling teeth to get the first prototype made and, and figure out how it should all work. Every single game does that. London Necropolis was no different. The best, I mean, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the, the kind of co-publishing process and working with, I've never worked with an artist before because all the new mill stuff, I just kind of do myself. Um, so the back and forth with the artist was super cool. And that was a great, um, a great experience being able to like kind of direct all that. And then, yeah, just, you know, in, in any game really like those moments where you, you figure out something that just makes the game so much better, like streamline something, or it's just that moment of like, oh my God, why didn't I think of that before? That's so obvious. You know, like those kind of, those kind of sparks are always cool. Um, nothing specific, I guess, with this game as opposed to others, but except for the, like the co-publishing thing was super cool. Hey, I mean, not having a super negative experience is a good thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't think we'll take of it anything, as a win. Yeah. I can't think of anything super negative about this one. I did have one person. Well, you know, it's tough having a game about, uh, dealing with the dead when a pandemic hits yeah. is a little rough. Uh, try oh, and, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. yeah Cause I finished, oh. like I was, start, I wanted to start pitching it right when the pandemic hit. And I had to like kind of put it on, put it on ice for a little bit, but and I, you know, I had one person suggest maybe I should change the theme. And I was like, I can't like, this is the theme. Like I can't change the theme. So I just kind of sat on it for a while. And then once the pandemic lightened up, we were able to, we didn't feel too worried about, worried about it. And it seems to be, we haven't actually had any negative feedback on, on that front. So. Okay. 
Well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, I personally, one of my favorite things about board games is passively learning. So sure. anytime it's like a lightly historical game, yeah. big fan, or if it teaches me about a culture that I've never experienced or even heard of. Yeah. Assuming that fun. culture is treated appropriately, which this in is board true. games this isn't is always true. the case, but yeah, this is no, true. I agree. I like, I like those opportunities. Yeah, for sure. But it sounds like you definitely brought that game out and you found a co-publisher because of it. So yeah. That's so cool. And then as far as like other designers go, if you were to give them a piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, uh, I mean, don't be afraid to get your game to the table early and often and change things. Don't get too married to, you know, a specific idea. Um, but yeah, play testing early is so important. You can have your game all thought out in your head, but until it's on the table, it, it, it's not a game yet. Um, that's the That's the biggest advice that I have is just, yeah, get it out there. 100% agree. Definitely play test often. <laughs> yep. Yep. Sweet. And then for my last question, I would like to know if you could be the designer of any game that you are not the designer of, what game would you want to have created? Um, yeah, I was thinking about this one. So Power Grid is one of the first games that I played that made me go, oh, somebody designed this. Uh, and it was the the way the resource market. Have you you've played Power Grid? I have, and I'm not gonna lie. So I played it at a friend's house, and then years later, I thought I saw it on discount. Should have checked more thoroughly because I ended up just buying an expansion board with a different oh, map no. because the box looks like the freaking yeah. same. So when I moved, I sold it, um, but I was pretty upset because I thought I bought the actual game, and I really bought like a European map or something. Oh, no, that's too know. bad. Yeah, um, but it's a really good game. No, Power Grid um, is amazing. I, it's it's one of those early Euros that I still. I will play anytime. Um, and the, like the way the resource market works in that is absolutely brilliant. And it was the first time, like I played a game and I was like, Oh my God, somebody intentionally designed this. And it's like blew my mind. Um, so yeah, I, I would go with power grid. I would be the designer of power grid for sure. I think you might have chosen the heaviest game that anyone has said they wanted to have created. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I'm like thinking back and I was like, most of them have been like party games or oh. like things that are super successful. Oh, I don't care about that. I mean, I just talked about how I run my company. Yeah, <laughs> Obviously, yeah, you're, monetary you're success driven. isn't my biggest, uh, <laughs> my biggest motivator. No, that's so interesting. I feel like now I have to write down all of them and compare them. But yeah, I'm pretty That'd sure this cool is list. the heaviest. All right, I'll take it. Congratulations, you are the winner. <laughs> All right, number 50. <laughs> yeah, number 50. Could you imagine waiting in that line? No, oh thank you. I would not classify that as winning. <laughs> so funny. Well, yeah, it sounds like the structure of how your company is run is very unique and different in like really cool ways. Yeah. So Yeah, we're I trying to do something to different. I mean, there's so many, so many games out there and so many little publishers, you know, kind of yelling for attention and we thought we'd whisper instead i like how you say you're rock you're like rock on and then it's like we're gonna whisper okay yeah i like the mixed signals it's great <laughs> punk rock publisher punk rock publisher that whispers yep yeah and then people gotta listen what was that what was it say it again it's so funny yeah you might need to buy some new amps for your publishing company there we go <laughs> Awesome. Well, I'm super excited to see what else comes out. I've already yeah, backed Portent. So oh, fantastic. Yeah, I play tested it at, oh, gosh, for, I think it was QsCon last year, Chris. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, big fan of abstracts. So oh, yeah. hopefully it did well. 
Uh, we'll yeah, to do it, well. it's it's doing really well. Uh, we funded. It took us a couple days to fund, but then once we did, it's just been kind of steadily creeping up. I think we're over we're over eleven thousand at this point of our eight thousand goal. Uh, so yeah, it's doing, it's doing good. I'm happy. So actually, yeah, as a last question, when you're doing your Kickstarter, knowing you're running such a small quantity, do you have like a specific quantity in mind? And like, if you just blow it out of the water, do you adjust the quantity? Like how does that work on the back end? So we will print as many copies as we have backers for plus maybe 10% is typically how we do it. Um, and I set the minimum goal at about 250, uh, because there are some price breaks at around 250 where things get a little cheaper. Um, and if we can't do 250 copies, then it's not really worth doing. One of our earlier games, we wound up kind of breaking even because we didn't really print enough. So, yeah, I mean, you know, this is our fifth campaign. We've kind of figured out the formula. We were maxing out our print runs at 500 for a while, and then we had to double that for Union Station because it sold out those first 500 and like, six hours or something crazy, um, which <laughs> wow. we, we weren't expecting. <laughs> um, the, the issue was, so I have a Twitter following and then Travis Hill, who's the designer of Union Station, also has a Twitter following and like people are super into his train games. So we just got bombarded early um, because of uh, everybody Travis was bringing. So we wound up doubling that to a thousand, but I really had to check because Tony has to hand assemble all these. Uh, and that one included like 85 colored discs six different colors or whatever. Um, so it was a lot of work for him. I was like, are you sure you can manage a thousand copies? Like, I don't want to overload you. We wound up like doing two waves. So the first 500 backers will get theirs sooner. And then there might be a month or two while Tony recovers <laughs> before he does yeah. the other set. And that, that worked out really well. Um, so we went ahead and did a thousand max on this one as well. But I, I, I don't think we'll get there. We may get, I would be surprised if we got to 500, um, just at the rate it's going now, but I anticipate right now we're printing at least 300. We have, what is it? Oh, 272 backers for the game, you know, at, at the, at the game level. So that's, yeah. If, if we stopped right now, I would print, I would print 300 and that would be it. Yeah. But if it keeps going, we could go to 350 or 400. We've got another week to go. So we will see. Awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. And then you mentioned Twitter. So where can you be reached online for anyone who's trying to find you or your company or anything related to you? Yeah. So I am at uh, DNLNWMN, which is my name without vowels, Daniel Newman. I have a very common name, so it's hard to be, be original. Yeah. So that's my Twitter handle. And then uh, at new underscore mill is our company on Twitter as well. We also have a website, newmillindustries.com. Uh, which you can see info on all of our all of our games. Sweet. And yep. then I'm your host, Danielle Reynolds. If you're looking to find me on social media, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter under the username Token Gamer, and that's spelled G-A-Y-M-E-R. But uh, thank you, Daniel, for celebrating my 50th episode, which yeah. I still cannot believe. Congratulations. Thank you. And thanks for everybody who is listening. Uh, this was Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 50, London Necropolis Railway. I hope you join in on the next 50 episodes. Let's see how long I can keep this going, I guess. Good luck. Thanks again for having me. Oh my God, thank you. Thank you for joining Danielle for another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.